Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. As always, I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through the stand. So before we jump into this week's episode, we did get some news this week that Stephen King will be releasing a new novel in March of 2021. The novel is called Later, and it is going to be published by Hard Case Crime, who is the same publisher who released The Colorado Kid and one of my favorite Stephen King novels, Joyland. The synopsis of Later is... The son of a struggling single mother, Jamie Conklin, just wants an ordinary childhood. But Jamie is no ordinary child. Born with an unnatural ability his mom urges him to keep secret, Jamie can see what no one else can see and learn what no one else can learn. But the cost of using this ability is higher than Jamie can imagine. As he discovers when an NYPD detective draws him into the pursuit of a killer who has threatened to strike from beyond the grave. Later is Stephen King at his finest, a terrifying and touching story of innocence lost and the trials that test our sense of right and wrong. With echoes of King's classic novel, It, Later is a powerful, haunting, unforgettable exploration of what it takes to stand up to evil in all the faces it wears. So, of course, this sounds interesting. I like the synopsis. Um, I kind of take all the comparisons of his newer novels to It with a grain of salt But I think King writes children incredibly well, and I'm really looking forward to getting this in March. I have posted the synopsis, uh, the cover, and a pre-order link at thecircleopens.com if you guys want to check that out. Obviously, you can pre-order anywhere you buy your books, um, but I'm really excited to have something to look forward to uh, next year because this year has been such a crap show. (laughs) So it's kind of nice to have something uh, exciting to Um, already look forward to for next year. So go ahead and check that out, you guys. And without further ado, we're going to jump into episode 59 of The Circle Opens. And rather than just focus on chapter 63, I realized a bit belatedly that chapter 63 is only a few pages, (laughs) or I would have probably tacked it on to last week's episode. But instead, I'm going to tack on chapter 64 to this episode as well. I think chapter 64 is a really fascinating Uh, look at the end of one of our uh, characters. So I've noticed with The Stand, book three, there's a lot of death. So we're going to hit on some more of that. So, okay, let's get started. So let's recap chapter 62. Dana Jurgens has been in Vegas for about eight days, sleeping with Lloyd Henry and slowly getting information from him about Indian Springs and Randall Flagg himself. She knows the judge is dead, and she also sees Tom in town although she questions whether or not it was truly Tom Cullen. When Dana's betrayal is discovered, she's taken to Flag, who plays nice for a while, even offering to let Dana return to the free zone to assure them that Flag and his people out west mean no harm. All he asks for in return is the name of the third spy. Dana refuses, and Flag attacks her. In order to save Tom and herself, 
Dana kills herself on a piece of glass before he can torture the information out of her. So in chapter 63, we meet Angelina Hirschfield, a 27-year-old woman who is taking care of Denny, a little boy who we met briefly in chapter 62. They are in a city park, and Angie is watching Denny play while she talks to a 17-year-old girl who had arrived in Vegas five weeks earlier. The girl herself sort of puts Angie off. The girl was 10 years younger, now clad in tight blue jean shorts and a brief midi blouse, which left absolutely nothing to the imagination. There was something obscene about the contrast between the tight allure of her young body and the childish, pouty, and rather vacuous expression on her face. Her conversation was monotonous and seemingly without end. Rock stars, sex, her lousy job-cleaning Cosmoline preservative off armaments at Indian Springs. Sex, her diamond ring. Sex, the TV programs that she missed so much, and sex. As Angie listens to this girl, it's then that Denny spots Tom coming back from work, his lunch bucket in hand. Angie muses that Denny loves Lloyd Henry and Tom Cullen more than anyone else in town. The two women watch as Tom spins Denny around and then sets him down before the little boy can puke. Denny and Tom say goodbye, and Angie notices the girl is staring with a narrow gaze at Tom's retreating back. The girl asks if Tom came in with another man, a deaf and dummy. Angie says no, explaining that the free zone drove Tom out. The girl watched Tom out of sight. She thought of Pepto-Bismol in a bottle. She thought of a scrawled note that said, We don't need you. That had been back in Kansas a thousand years ago. She had shot at them. She wished she had killed them, particularly the dummy. Angie asks if she's all right, and Julie Lowry didn't answer. She stared after Tom Cullen. In a little while, she began to smile. So yes, we get to catch up a little with Julie Lowry. And I suppose we all knew where she would end up after meeting her in Chapter 43. She's definitely a wild card here still spouting her obsession with sex and her interest to the annoyance of everyone, this time Angelina Hirschfield, one might think Julie to be unstable, but maybe harmless. However, she recognizes Tom now. She knows who he is. And even if Nick isn't there, the rumors of the spies with the judge and Dana had already gotten around Vegas. People are talking. And it could be Julie who informs Flag that Tom could be the third spy. And it's interesting how Tom and Nick's encounter with Julie is now coming full circle, and she might finally get her revenge on them for rejecting her in Kansas. And that was chapter 63, which was super small, uh, super short, but it introduces a new, I guess, thorn in the side of the free zone. Uh, so far, Flag has been unable to spot Tom to see him as that third spy. And everybody um, kind of bought, I guess they bought Tom's excuse that he was thrown out of the free zone for being simple, I guess. But Julie is definitely something that could just derail the whole thing and get Tom killed. So with chapter 64, I love the beginning of this chapter. The dying man opened the permacover notebook, uncapped his pen, paused a moment, and then began to write. We are back with Harold and Nadine or rather, Harold. Right away, we're told he's dying, and he's writing in a notebook. Harold thinks back on the various memories of his childhood, 
when he first began to write. In those days, his mother and father had still had some love left over for him. Amy had not yet blossomed, and his own future as the amazing, agunquit fat boy and possible homosexual was not yet decided. Words have always meant something to Harold, and it was how he was able to get his thoughts out of his mind when there was really no one else around to listen to him. He bought a typewriter and was soon able to write over 100 words a minute, and he was always able to keep up with his racing thoughts and snare them all on paper. But he had always saved the best of himself for longhand. No paragraphs, no line breaks, no pauses for the eye, the kind of writing that Fran had seen in his ledger. And now he would transcribe the last of himself the same way. There are buzzards circling overhead, and Harold can't help but think of it as something from a movie or a novel. Harold saw the buzzards circling in the sky, waiting. He looked at them calmly for a moment and then bent to his journal again. His leg is broken, shattered, actually. He's been under the shade of a rock for five days now. His food is gone. His water is gone. Although two hard rain showers had provided him enough that he hadn't died yet, his leg was putrefying, green and gassy, swelled tight in his pants like sausage. And Nadine? She was long gone. But Harold still had his gun, with three cartridges left. Two had been fired at Nadine when she told him she was going on without him, and that's when we learn what happened. They had been coming around a hairpin turn, Nadine on the inside, Harold on the outside aboard his Triumph cycle. They were on the Colorado Western Slope, about 70 miles from the Utah border. There had been an oil slick on the outer part of the curve, and in the days since, Harold had pondered much on this oil slick. It seemed almost too perfect. An oil slick from what? Surely nothing had been moving up here over the last two months. Plenty of time for a slick to dry up. It was as if his red eye had been watching them, waiting for the correct time to produce an oil slick and take Harold out of the play. Leave him with her through the mountains in case of trouble, and then ditch him. He had, as they say, served his purpose. The triumph had slid into the guardrail, and Harold had been flicked over the side like a bug. There had been an excruciating pain in his right leg. He had heard the wet snap as it broke. He screamed. Then the hard scrabble was coming up to meet him, hard scrabble that was falling away at a steep, sickening angle toward the gorge below. He could hear fast-flowing water somewhere down there. He hit the ground, cartwheeled high into the air, screamed again, came down on his right leg once more, heard it break someplace else, went flying into the air again, came down, rolled, and suddenly fetched up against a dead tree that had healed over in some years ago thunderstorm. If it hadn't been there, he would have gone into the gorge and the mountain trout would have snacked on him instead of the buzzards. And while Harold didn't blame Nadine now, he blamed her then. He had crawled back up the slope, screaming at her to get the rope out of the saddlebag. His leg was broken. But she had simply stood at the guardrail, looking down at him and shaking her head. She told him, All of this was arranged, Harold. I have to go on. I'm very sorry. Harold tried to crawl up the slope further. Took him three hours, and he was sure she had left, but no, Nadine still stood there watching him. She had an expression of grieving sorrow, although her eyes were flat and far away. And that was when Harold had begun to hate her. Nadine tried to explain. She said, it's better this way, Harold. Better for you, because his way would be so much worse. You see that, don't you? 
You wouldn't want to meet him face to face, Harold. He feels that someone who would betray one side would probably betray the other. He'd kill you, but he'd drive you mad first. He has that power. He let me choose. This way or his way. And I chose this. You can end it quickly if you're brave. You know what I mean. Harold told her she's a betrayer too, and Nadine replies that she never betrayed him in her heart. Though Harold disagrees and points out that's exactly where she betrayed him. Flag knows it too. But Nadine has to go on. Flag needs her, and she needs him. Nadine tells him, You were never in it, Harold. And if we'd gone on together, I might have... Might have let you do something to me. That small thing. And that would have destroyed everything. I couldn't take the smallest chance that might happen after all the sacrifice and blood and nastiness. We sold our souls together, Harold. But there's enough of me left to want full value for mine. That's when Harold tried to shoot her. He missed, but took satisfaction in the shock in her expression. She hadn't thought he had it in him. And while Nadine seemed frozen to the spot, he aimed again, and probably would have fired directly into her throat, if not for the sweat dripping into his eyes and the fact that he started slipping backward. Though as he thought about it now, it felt more like he was being pushed. On the way down, he struck a tree and passed out. When he woke, it was after dusk and Nadine was gone. Around seven that morning, he began to crawl again, making it to the guardrail where his motorcycle waited. He was able to get some food, though it made him throw up. And while he sat there, he realized that he was going to die there. That was when he began to write in his notebook. Instead of his meticulous handwriting, the words were straggled and sloppy. He wrote, Are they all dead, I wonder? The committee? If so, I am sorry. I was misled. That is a poor excuse for my actions, but I swear, out of all I know, that is that it is the only excuse that ever matters. The dark man is as real as the superflu itself, as real as the atomic bombs that still sit somewhere in their lead-lined closets. And when the end comes, and when it is as horrible as good men always knew it would be, there is only one thing to say as all those good men approach the throne of judgment. I was misled. Harold is well aware that anyone who reads that portion of his ledger will think of him as a hypocrite, but it was what it was. He had seen himself as the king of anarchy, but the dark man had seen through him and had reduced him effortlessly to a shivering bag of bones dying badly by the highway. His leg had swelled up like an inner tube. It smelled like gassy, overripe bananas, and he sat here with buzzards swooping and diving on the thermals overhead, trying to rationalize the unspeakable. He had fallen victim to his own protracted adolescence. It was as simple as that. He had been poisoned by his own lethal visions. Dying, he felt as if he had gained a little sanity and maybe even a little dignity. He did not want to demean that with small excuses that would come limping off the page on crutches. I could have been something in Boulder, he said quietly, and the simple awful truth of that might have brought tears if he hadn't been so tired and so dehydrated. He looked at the straggling letters on the page, and from there to the colt. Suddenly he wanted it over, and he tried to think how to put a finish to his life in the truest, simplest way he could. It seemed more necessary than ever to write it and leave it for whoever might find him, in one year or in ten. He gripped the pen, thought, wrote. I apologize for the destructive things I have done, but do not deny that I did them of my own free will. 
On my school papers, I have always signed my name, Harold Emery Louder. I signed my manuscripts, poor things that they were, the same way. God help me, I once wrote it on the roof of a barn in letters three feet high. I want to sign this by a name given me in Boulder. I could not accept it then, but I take it now freely. I am going to die in my right mind. And he signs the letter, Hawk. As he puts the muzzle of his gun into his mouth, he looks up at the sky and thinks about a game he had played when he was a child, a game with other children. There was a gravel pit out on one of the back roads, and you could jump off the edge and fall a heart-stopping distance before hitting the sand, rolling over and over and finally climbing up to do it all over again. All except Harold. Harold would stand on the lip of the drop and chant, one, two, three, just like the others, but the talisman never worked. His legs remained locked. He could not bring himself to jump, and the others sometimes chased him home, shouting at him, calling him Harold the Pansy. He thought, if I could have brought myself to jump once, just once, I might not be here. Well, last time pays for all. Harold pulls the trigger, and the gun goes off. Harold jumped. So, in chapter 64, we get some closure for Harold, but not Nadine. Harold, who had been so angry and bitter at Stu for taking Fran, at the committee for leaving him off the roster, he had been seduced easily by Nadine and then by Flag, and the power he could have had in Vegas. Harold had been easy to manipulate, despite being so pretentious and thinking he was so superior to everyone else. Flag and Nadine had used him, and when his role was finished, they killed him. And it's a gruesome way to die, being left for dead after shattering a leg out in the middle of nowhere where no one was going to come along and save you. Even with his leg as terrible as it was, it wasn't likely that he'd survive even if someone was there, unless they tried to amputate the leg, and that didn't have a, (laughs) I don't think that that would have a very high survival rate either. So it's clear now that Flag gave Nadine a choice, let Harold die, now, or when he got to Vegas, which would be so much worse for him. Nadine made the choice. And did she feel guilt? Maybe. But she seems to think that this was mercy, that she was helping Harold because this death would be so much easier to take than what Flag would do to him. They never intended for Harold to make it out west, but Harold was so full of himself to realize it. He had such the sense of entitlement that he got played. And now, of course, he knows it. I found it fascinating how King delivers this last encounter with Harold to us, and it all goes back to writing, words, how Harold survived pouring his thoughts, desires, and resentments into words on paper. That was how he had escaped his neglected childhood, the bullying he suffered while his older sister succeeded and shined. He did it as a child, transcribing books into notebooks, creating a certain style of writing that didn't conform to the norm. He wrote for the school paper and then began his own ledger of hate after finding and reading Fran's diary. And now at the end of his life, he continues to write to try and explain to whoever might find his notebook why he did what he did and that he's sorry for it. He was misled. He has no idea if anyone will ever find his body or his words, but he writes them anyway. He wants that last moment of redemption for the people he hurt to understand and perhaps As he said, he wanted to die in his right mind. This is his way of clearing his conscience. And that's an interesting thing to me. He wrote, I was misled. But was he? Because it seemed very obvious from the get-go. 
what Flag was offering him, what Nadine was offering him. She made it clear what they were meant to do, kill the committee and leave Boulder. So yes, Nadine promised him things, or at least tempted him, with the idea of the power and life he could have in Vegas. But Harold made those choices of his own free will, as he says in his letter, so he takes responsibility. But perhaps he was only misled into believing he had a future outside of Boulder. If he hadn't had his accident, if Nadine hadn't abandoned him, he would still be on that cycle, driving into Vegas, ready for his new life, ready to go over to Boulder in the spring and decimate everybody who he felt slighted him. Would he have been sorry for what he did to the Free Zone Committee at that point? Now that Nadine has betrayed him, his eyes are open, and now he's sorry. It's kind of that thing where, you know, people get caught doing horrible things, they get videotaped doing horrible things, and that probably dates my age when I say videotaped instead of recorded. (laughs) But it's then that they're sorry. So are you sorry for what you did, or are you sorry that you got caught? Are you sorry that you were played and you didn't know it until this moment? Harold knows that he could have been someone in Boulder. He had those thoughts before Nadine showed up on his porch. He could have let bygones be bygones with Fran and Stu. He had a cool nickname given to him by Teddy Wiesak, whom Harold killed with that bomb. And even if he hadn't been on the committee, he still had respect from people in Boulder, which was impressive given his young age. He could have truly made something of himself in the free zone. He could have been on that committee eventually. He could have probably fallen in love and had a family. He had friends. He could have written more, maybe a book, but that bitterness was too much for him to overcome. And I don't know if that's just how he was wired or if that came with his age, the hate for Stu and Fran and the committee. So yes, he made his choices and now he was going to die for them. Given what he did, it's difficult to feel pity or sympathy for Harold. I know a lot of people hated Harold and I hated him too, but I do kind of feel a little bit of sympathy. As much as I feel for Nadine, and the position she's in, Harold seems to be just as much of a tragic figure as Nadine is. Harold had free will. He just made the wrong choice. And in the end, he puts that gun in his mouth and ends it. So do you think, you guys, do you think he deserves pity? Do you think he's truly sorry for what he did? How things might have changed or been different if Harold had turned Nadine away? And that reminds me of Larry. How would things have been different if Larry hadn't rejected Nadine? It's a thread of decisions made by our characters that have led to this. Death, destruction, sacrifice. I don't blame Larry for rejecting Nadine and being faithful and committed to Lucy. I guess in a way, I can't really even blame Harold for having this beautiful woman on his porch waiting for him, offering him all these things that no one else was offering him. Two very similar choices with very dire consequences. So we are, what, four chapters into book three of The Stand, and now we have three deaths. The Judge, Dana, Harold. As much as I hated Harold, his death affected me a little bit more this time than usual. It's simply one of those things where you wish something had gone differently, but Harold had a purpose. He served it, and now his body has been left for the buzzards. Not only that, but Julie has recognized Tom, so I'm worried. Will he make it out of Vegas without having to encounter Flag? And what about Nadine? What is her fate? She'll finally come face to face with her groom next week in chapter 65. And that's chapter 63 and 64, everybody. That's it for this episode of The Circle Opens. What did you guys think? What do you think about Harold's demise? Are you feeling sorry for him? 
Are you happy he's gone? Do you think that his death was warranted and deserved? Would you like to see something else happen to him? If you want to talk to me about it, you can email me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com. Find me on social media at The Circle Opens, or you can uh, get in touch with me at my blog, thecircleopens.com. It's definitely a chapter to think about. Chapter 64 is definitely something that I didn't really expect to stick with me the way it did this time, but it has. So I'm not as sad about Harold as I am Dana or the judge, but, you know, Harold was one of those characters that was with us for a long time. And like Nick, he's just now he's gone. So we're getting closer and closer to the end, you guys. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how this all turns out. So. With that being said, if you're enjoying the podcast, you can leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. And thank you so much to everybody who's already done so. Um, I love reading your reviews. You guys are so nice. And I appreciate every kind word. Um, Truly, truly, I do. So thank you so much again. And that's it, you guys. Have a safe week. Stay healthy. Wear your mask and social distance, please. I would like for you all to be around for a very long time. And M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week. Bye.